0: Hello and welcome back to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Oscar Boyd. Today we're going to be looking at the closing moments of the Olympic Games. 10 years of planning and they're done just like that. And a final and warm welcome back to Patrick St. Michelle who has been with us for five episodes throughout this Olympic journey. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me again and how are you feeling now that these Olympics are finished?
1: I'm doing well. I'm still riding high on this uh, five podcast appearance streak. I wear this humbly, <laughs> but I appreciate our time together. It's historic, <laughs> historic five-week run. It's been fun. It's been great. Um, I haven't had to go anywhere, Oscar. The whole Olympics for me was a TV experience, whereas for you, every day was like uh, an adventure. How are you doing now that the games are over? I feel like I've exited this weird
0: parallel reality it feels like it could have been done a thousand miles out to sea right because even though it was the tokyo games in name it really didn't feel like it was that attached to the city it felt like it was this floating extra land of olympic sporting glory that kind of sat on top of the reality of japan in the
1: background i think you're describing the ioc's dream of being able to start their own nation where they can just do this <laughs> but uh that is something i've actually heard from a lot of foreign media that came to the games there was the feeling of displacement and like oh despite this being the tokyo olympics it's mostly happening right in these weird little pockets of stadiums and arenas and that was also like reflected in the fact that almost every media person who came had to, Like did a story about convenience stores just because that was the only sustenance available to them. Yeah, I don't know how everyone's coping after 14 days of convenience store
0: food. Um, Their insides are a mess, I'm sure.
1: Well, I would argue, uh, if they're anything like me who's been enjoying convenience food for, what, 12 years straight now, um, they're probably doing great and only slightly uh, lethargic and making doctors aghast. But it was something that also viewers I saw were kind of like... Like if they were watching the coverage on, say, NBC in the United States, uh, I imagine it was the same in England. If they're watching on BBC, it's kind of like it doesn't feel like it's in Japan. You're lacking kind of the signature, even the cutaways Mm. where it's like, "Look, Harajuku." That was absent. Mm. Right. Let's jump into the sports. Let us the last few days of the games. What what were some of your like? What stood out to you, Oscar? What did you see, or what kind of like lingered with
0: you? So the final thing that I actually saw and went to in person was the velodrome on Sunday morning. And that's actually out in Izu, in Shizuoka Prefecture. And the great thing about the Izu Velodrome is actually it's a very small velodrome. You know, the track size is standard, but the seats and the stands are just right up
1: against the track. This guy loves cycling. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and to see it um, up close, that close. Yeah, see the, the kind of the speed of it and the feel of the wind of the athletes as they rush past you was just exhilarating.
1: Oh my God, that sounds so fun. That's like... It also is nice just to get out of Tokyo, it sounds like. So that's cool. Well,
0: the interesting thing is that Shizuoka Prefecture isn't actually in a state of emergency right now. So that velodrome in Izu is one of the few venues where some spectators from the public were allowed in, which was great because one of the main competitions that day was the women's omnium. And the silver medalist was a Japanese rider called Yumi Kajihara. And I think her winning a medal at that velodrome makes her the only Japanese medalist potentially to have won a medal in front of crowds at these Olympics, which I thought was Mm. quite a nice moment for her. And it's the only place I've been in this entire Olympic Games where, you know, there was a proper, proper crowd cheering on as she raced around
1: the track. I mean, yeah, that's like low-key one of those like really cool moments. I'm glad you could see that. Yeah, no, it's a real taster of what the Tokyo Olympics should have been like. Uh, How about
0: you though? What caught your eye from the last few days of the Olympics?
1: Well, as somebody experiencing all of this just from the comfort of their living room, I guess one of the bigger highlights, and I feel this is true for many Japanese viewers across the country, was on Saturday, uh, the Japanese national baseball team, uh, Samurai Japan, they beat the United States in the gold medal game to take home the country's first gold medal in baseball. I feel that got so many people hyped just because baseball as we know is probably the most popular team sport slash sport period in the country and it's the first time they pulled this off and people were just jazzed for it the following day saw the i would say kind of the the underdog story at least for Japanese athletes, which was the Japanese women's basketball team who had never won an Olympic medal ever before. Mm. They managed to get all the way to the gold medal game to play uh, the United States. They took home the silver. The players were still excited. They still made history. And it was one of the cooler things to see and one of the nicer surprises of the past two weeks
0: yeah that must have been huge for that team yeah and capped off a really nice last weekend of sport in these olympics the one thing we also mentioned in the last podcast we did and pretty much every podcast we've done about the olympics was the marathon that was always the competition that had the most concern around it regarding the heat the women's ended up getting moved to start at 6 a.m to avoid the incredibly hot Sapporo weather Despite that, I think the athletes were still competing in around 30 degree temperature and 82% humidity. And I know that 15 of the 88 athletes in the women's race didn't actually manage to finish. That was won by Kenya's Perez Jepchirchir. And then the men's was won by two-time Olympic gold marathon medalist Eliud Kipchoge. And both of their medals were presented in really nice fashion at the closing ceremony that took place on Sunday evening. But they made it. They made it through the marathon. This was always the one where... Right,
1: <laughs> it happened. It, it actually happened, guys.
0: Much like all the rest of the Olympics, they made it through, even if not in the best of conditions.
1: Right. To also close a loop that we brought up in the last episode, last week we were talking about how an athlete from Totori Prefecture became the first Olympian to ever take... A gold medal home to said prefecture which meant that only one prefecture in japan couldn't lay claim to an olympic champion which oscar correctly called uh, okinawa, okinawa yeah. folks that's changed again all 47 <laughs> prefectures can raise their heads confidently because they have a gold medal adorned around their neck uh for okinawa they can thank rio kiyuna who took home the gold in uh, karate. Which is
0: extra fitting because karate was also invented in Okinawa. So congratulations, Okinawa. Well done. A
1: perfect ending for that long drought. Congrats, every prefecture. <laughs> you did it. You got a gold.
0: Let's jump into the closing ceremony because that was the kind of... The event that capped these games took place on Sunday evening at 8pm in Tokyo's new national stadium, the the same one that had been used for the opening ceremony and all the track and field events. And organisers said that the theme of the night was to show all the athletes who'd been locked away in that olympic village in that olympic bubble what they'd been missing during their stay which feels both nice and slightly cruel
1: cruel though (laughs) the organizer
0: Mm -hmm. said it was meant to be just like a sunday afternoon at a park in tokyo which yeah okay kind of kind of makes sense if you put it into the context of all the weirdness that happens at a you know maybe yeah on sunday
1: sure why not
0: <laughs> well run us through the night then patrick what did you make of it
1: uh so the closing ceremony as it tends to always always be it, there's a lot less anticipation going into it so what we actually saw sunday was i would say weaker than the opening ceremony i think their music choices were again kind of like all right but also sort of at times baffling they had uh the singer sort of like rising singer songwriter named uh Millet. she performed a song that felt very much like her label probably paid for that uh good for them though um <laughs> tokyo ska paradise orchestra made an appearance a sort of long running as the name implies ska band who are fine if you like ska that's perfectly cool and i think they're trying to channel what oscar was saying about you know a sunday in a park in tokyo they're trying to channel the whole like if you go to yoyogi park you'll see people doing rockabilly dances and other stuff just dressed as like a sort of off-brand elvis I think it's a
0: real shame that they didn't bring in the Yoyogi rockabilly dancers because, you know, they're always performing on a Sunday afternoon outside Yoyogi Park. Um, I know most people who visit Yoyogi are like, stop and watch them for a bit as they dance around the rocking right. clock or
1: whatever. They- <laughs> um, so they should
0: have brought them on.
1: <laughs> yeah, they should have brought the greasers. They should have brought the drum circles that do a ambient drone for three hours straight right in the middle. Uh, They should have just brought some people, throwing a frisbee around. It would have been perfect. Um, I would also say the other thing that sticks out with the closing ceremony is it kind of leaned heavier into traditional Japanese, both music and just culture in general. Uh, Mm. We got kind of like a summer, like, odori, like, dance bit. It was something that was surprisingly absent from the opening ceremony. They didn't kind of go crazy with the uh, japan remember the past uh, i think they mostly just had like kabuki at one point
0: i actually thought those traditional dance videos at least were um some of the best parts of the night uh, okay I, I mean they were beautifully shot and i think the original concept was those dancers who performed in the videos would have actually been in the stadium you know mm. it felt nicely inclusive of lots of different parts of Japan because we saw some Ainu dancing. So Japan's mm-hmm, indigenous or Hokkaido's indigenous population dancing. And that was beautifully shot as they kind of... Da- I, don't know, I don't know which lake they were dancing on the shores of, but just Hokkaido looked amazing in that. And then they skipped down to Okinawa for the Asa dance and then to Akita for the Bon Odori dances. I think one of the reasons I found it nice to see was that a lot of these kind of festivals have actually been cancelled and postponed and delayed all throughout the pandemic and so we're now kind of in our second summer in Japan where Mm. you know normally you'd have these festivals happening all over the country but they're, they're just really not
1: Yeah, a lot of people were kind of like, oh, this is just reminding me that we can't actually have festivals, which was like a sort of uh, melancholy underlining to it. Mm. And I guess that also something that both you and I would have experienced is the handover ceremony, which I do think is the one element of the closing ceremony, especially in recent years, that people do anticipate. People were curious how it would look going from Tokyo to Paris, where the 2024 Summer Olympics will be held. Uh, they did the usual like IOC business, handing over flags, playing anthems, uh, playing a very nice lounge version of Pizzicata 5 in the background. And then we jumped to the main event. Yeah,
0: as you said in the last episode we did, it was always going to be interesting to see how France projected itself. And I think the image that was projected by the Paris Olympics was very much of a post-COVID reality again it was another video package i'm sure they would have loved to do more of it in person it started off with a really i thought a really nice rendition of the french national anthem played by the national orchestra of france and and that was kind of played all across the city so you had different musicians i think the flautist was standing on top of the stade de france which is going to be the track and field stadium for the paris olympics you had people in the louvre etc cetera, etc cetera. and to top it all off you had french astronaut thomas pesquet who uh finished the national anthem by playing the saxophone aboard the international space station
1: to be honest that was my highlight and i think it was also like is that the first saxophone solo that's ever been conducted in space because that's quite impressive (laughs) and i think we need to document that
0: yeah it's very very cool after that finished we saw this bmx ride across the rooftops of paris which again looked great and then there was a live broadcast from the foot of the eiffel tower and here's the moment where it really felt they were trying to go for the post-COVID vibe because there were just huge crowds of people waving their tiny little French flags. And then there was a the flyover from the Patrie de France. And then it cut back to the national stadium in Tokyo, which was just empty. And it was really bizarre to see just how empty Tokyo felt. And after seeing all these people gathered together celebrating the Paris 2024 Olympics to come.
1: Yeah, it was like cutting back to that empty stadium. It is just really kind of a uh, I don't think it was mean necessarily, but to me it was kind of like, oh wow, right. This was a really weird like silent almost Olympics and mm. having that uh that that carrot dangled in front of us, kind of even being reminded that like, oh right, this could be a really lively and fun international gathering. It got me like sort of excited for Paris.
0: Yeah, it's just sad that Tokyo couldn't celebrate in the same way. To kind of finish off the event in the stadium, we had the Fuji flame cauldron closing to what felt like a Stanley Kubrick remix of Claire de Lune. Um, Very, very space age. Nice. I think they used a what's that instrument where you go like woo? Oh, theremin. Yeah. yeah, theremin. Yeah, I think they had a theremin playing <laughs> the melody. <of laughs> Can you Clair do de the Lune. theremin
1: sound again? <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, throughout, which oh was God. excellent. And then the then the cauldron closed, and symbolically, I think it was meant to look like a moon, which also makes sense with Claire de Lune, and also nice link to France and Paris going forward. It being composed by but with the theremin and the 1970s space future soundtrack i thought the whole thing was just going to blast off into space (laughs) i was really excited for that but then alas it just stayed in the stadium
1: get me off of this planet take me somewhere (laughs) fun national stadium
0: It's a week out from the closing of the Olympic Games. Well, five days. How how are you looking at this event now, Patrick?
1: I mean, obviously, as you have just laid out the timeline, it's been a week. So assessing any type of legacy at this point is a wild undertaking. I think there's a lot of different sort of fragmented ways I'm reflecting on the Games at the moment. For example, when I think about the actual sports and competition of it all, I think it was a really good Olympics. And if you isolate it just as, you know, a sporting event, I think it was really fun and really good, like a bit of escapism, some really great moments, like even removed from any sort of national rooting interests. And when you bring in those national rooting interests, there was plenty to celebrate. Um, Especially, I think one of the things this will be remembered as was sort of a potentially a breakthrough I don't know if it's the start of something new or a peak, but yeah, Japan just did just the best they ever have at these games. And I'm curious what comes next on a sort of just athletic level from there.
0: Right. And we we had a series of pieces coming out from our sports writers at the Japan Times, kind of looking back on these games and basically asking what are the takeaways here. And I I thought Dan Olowitz's article calling it the Athletes Olympics was really good basically he said in it and to quote that the lack of a roaring crowd may not have always made for the most thrilling television but it allowed the cameras to home in on all the smaller moments of humanity that are often drowned out by the spectacle of it all which i think we saw throughout you know we had those moments with the shared high jumper gold medal which you know you had the camera there for the moment and with no crowd in the stadium you could actually hear that audio very clearly i think the other potential takeaway um, and this is what my colleague Jason Cosgory wrote about was that these are the mental health Olympics Um, and this is basically told through the story of Simone Biles and how her early exit from a few of the different competitions and eventual return has allowed greater room for athletes to talk about some of the pressures that they go through at games like this and you know Jason said that mental health awareness in sports did not begin at these Olympics but they provided the platform for it to explode into the public consciousness like never before.
1: I do think the inescapable memory of 2020 Tokyo Olympics is something that you experienced firsthand and everybody could see via TV. This was the COVID-19 Olympics. It was the pandemic games. It's always going to stand out as a real snapshot of a specific moment. I think this is the first games where people really had to be aware of not just, like, a pandemic or a disease, but also, as we've touched on, uh, climate change, which drastically reshaped how these Olympics played out and the, like, literal locations where they happened. That's only going to become more apparent moving forward. I'm from Los Angeles, an area that is constantly on fire in the summer. And that's only going to get worse, unfortunately. So LA 2028 is really going to have to grapple with this. I kind of think people will look back on Tokyo 2020 as a starting point of a rethinking of how the Olympics have to function.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. Thinking about these Olympics, I'm kind of split down the middle because on the one hand, I do feel like there was just so... Much great sports that came out of it, and it was a fabulous distraction for two and a half weeks throughout the pandemic, throughout the very hot Japanese summer. But I think my main takeaway is that this was just an incredible lost opportunity for Japan. Reflecting back on the episodes we did a couple of weeks ago, where we looked at the journey from 2011 and to winning the bid in 2013 all the way through to before the pandemic started just the amount of excitement and enthusiasm around these games that did exist the fact that that never got to materialize is i think just really sad it's a real tragedy the fact that no one was able to be there in person to see when you know 13 year old momiji nishia won her gold medal in skateboarding that no one was there to see Gian marco tamberi and mutas bashim share their high jumping gold no one was there to see Simone Biles return back to the balance beam to win her bronze after her struggles with mental health issues I think all of that it's a real lost opportunity and I do wonder how it will affect the legacy of these games because when for example you see interviews with British athletes now so often that interview starts with a question of, oh, did you see this sport back in London 2012? And they'll say, yes, that was the moment I decided I wanted to give my all for these games. And I wonder whether that kind of thinking will exist around these games when no one was able to actually see them in person.
1: You know, you've hit on the major thing, which is it was not nearly as celebratory or just like joyful as it could have been. Mm. There's uh, there's like an alternate timeline where... Everything happens normally. You know, the opening ceremony goes off as originally planned. Two weeks ago, you know, it goes better than people maybe expect. And, you know, I just kind of think the country would be in a better mood. Just especially given how, like, glum the past Mm. almost two years now has been due to the pandemic, But the way everything played out, uh, no crowds, no, you know, all the controversy swirling around, um, I think it kind of just made everything a little more gloomy. And I do think the loss of that, you know, happiness that I think, you know, the Rugby World Cup we've talked about, I think people will remember that as a real, like, joyful blast. And I do think that's going to be the missing element is nobody's going to be like, Yeah, it was really fun for two weeks.
0: So these Olympics wrapped up on Sunday evening, and there's two weeks of relative calm now. And then on Tuesday, the 24th of August, the opening ceremony of the Paralympics is going to be held. And that will run all the way until Sunday 5th of September 2021. Uh, The Japan Times will, of course, be covering as much of it as it possibly can. And I think this is interesting because Tokyo will become the first city in the history of the Paralympic Games to host the Paralympics for a second time. Uh, Tokyo hosted it once before in 1964 when it last hosted the Summer
1: Olympics. Right. We're, we might be done with the Olympics, but the actual entire 2020 event is is still to unfold. So we'll still see a lot to happen there. Um, I know at one point there was discussion of seeing if they could allow spectators into that Um, I imagine, uh, due to current COVID-19 case numbers in Tokyo, that is probably leaning more towards no. So there's a real chance it'll kind of have the same cloudiness that was over the Tokyo 2020 Olympics is going to exist there. Um, But... Again, if you want to look for kind of like an upbeat thing, you know, there were plenty of great moments in these Olympics, is pure sport. And I imagine there will be plenty in the 2020 Paralympics as well.
0: Yeah, they had a montage at the end of the closing ceremony, which was kind of a look forward at the Paralympic Games. And that actually had me excited all over again to just watch the sports part of it. This time, unfortunately, I won't have a pass to actually get in. But yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing what happens and watching all these amazing Paralympians perform over the course of those two weeks. Hey, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Deep Dive and a special thank you once again to Patrick St. michel for speaking with me all throughout these games. I also want to give a shout out to my colleagues Jason Koskri, Dan Olwitz and Kaz Nagatsuka for their excellent coverage of the games over the last two weeks and also to everyone else at the JT who worked tirelessly behind the scenes. As we mentioned in the episode, the Japan Times will begin its coverage of the Paralympics in the next couple of weeks. Stay up to date on all the latest at japantimes.co.jp. Thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, summer.